Hill. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you don't have a Bible tonight, just uh, wave one of the guys that are coming up the aisle right now and they'll get a Bible into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. The first four uh, chapters of the book of Daniel uh, all pertain to the uh, 43-year reign of Nebuchadnezzar and his part in the Babylonian Empire. And chapter 5 uh, jumps some 23 years into the future, uh, 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, who founded the Babylonian Empire and made it the great thing that it was. And uh, it carries now the history of the Babylonian Empire from uh, the time of his death until uh, literally its uh, final uh, night uh, under the reign of his grandson by the name of, of Belshazzar before the Babylonian Empire was divided uh, and, and conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, Daniel, as we see him in chapter 5, is an old man. He has been serving God in the Babylonian Empire for some uh, 70 years, and he is probably in his mid to late 80s at this particular point. And uh, the, the book of Daniel is less concerned about providing us with a strict kind of uh, chronological uh, record of the events of the Babylonian Empire. What is at the forefront of the writing of, of the book of Daniel is to remind God's people, both the Jews that would have been the first readers of it, uh, in the Old Testament to God's people right into this room and into this age of uh, God's absolute sovereignty and His authority uh, over human history, whatever it might look like. And as we come to chapter 5, we see uh, some of the most appalling uh, expressions of pride and arrogance on the part of Belshazzar directed toward uh, his fellow man, specifically toward uh, Daniel, but then also toward God. And we live in a world as, as God's children, and uh, we once know, knew what it was like to live in the world, but the arrogance today, the expression of pride being directed uh, not only toward other people, but being directed toward God Himself, it is at such a I don't think a higher level in the history of the United States as we've thrown off kind of our uh, Christian heritage. And, and so the, the chapter uh, speaks a lot to our age and our nation. And the end of pride, especially all pride, but certainly any pride that is expressed uh, toward the Lord. Belshazzar, verse 1, the king, uh, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So Belshazzar now is the king of Babylon. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in verse 2, when it speaks about the fact that Belshazzar uh, is uh, uh, the uh, talks about Nebuchadnezzar being his father, and it, and it can also be translated uh, grandfather. Uh, in the uh, it, it, it referred to one's male ancestry. Uh, the terms in terms of that male ancestry, as it's recorded in the Bible, you'll notice that you never see two words in the Old Testament. Uh, you never see grandfather and you never see great-grandfather. Uh, male uh, men that a person was descended from, they were always referred to as father. And then based upon whatever names were then attached there would let you know whether the person was their uh, father or their grandfather or their great-grandfather. And, and that's the case here. All the way through the Old Testament, Abraham is referred to uh, as uh, Father Abraham by the Jews. He was not their actual father, but they were descendants uh, of his uh, ancestry. I think it is helpful to understand a little bit of a kind of a brief recounting of the events that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar's reign 
as the king of Babylon uh, to how Belshazzar finds himself now as the king of the kingdom. At the death of Nebuchadnezzar, his only son, by the name of Evil Merodach, uh, succeeded him at about 561 uh, BC. Uh, Evil Merodach was murdered by Nergal uh, Sharezer, who had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, daughters, so it was Evil Merodach's uh, brother-in-law, and uh, then he replaced his uh, murdered, the, the brother-in-law he had murdered, uh, on the throne about 559 B.C. Nergal uh, Sharezer, he was succeeded by his young son, who reigned really only a few months before he was murdered by a man of uh, Nabonidus. He was the husband of another one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, daughters, and Nabonidus uh, was really the, formerly the last ruler of the Babylonian Empire, but he spent, uh, he was kind of, um, uh, he liked to travel a lot. He was kind of an, an adventurer in that way. So he spent very little time in Babylon, the capital, and he was just off uh, in different parts of the empire, different parts of the world. He had kind of a wanderlust and uh, with all of his foreign expeditions, and, and basically he allowed his son Belshazzar to uh, remain and rule in Babylon as kind of his regent. And uh, this is why uh, later when Belshazzar offers, uh, makes the offer to anyone who can uh, interpret the handwriting on the wall, he offers as a reward uh, a third of the kingdom because that's all he could offer. He had to honor a third of the part toward his father who was still living uh, in another part of the kingdom, his third part. and. And, uh, and then to whoever would in- interpret a third part would go. All of this in terms of duration of the Babylonian Empire was exactly as God had prophesied far earlier uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah uh, wrote Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 6, if you take notes, and God declared, and now I have given all of these lands, speaking of, of uh, Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have given him uh, to serve, uh, also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's sons. In other words, God declared, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was the, under the impression that the Babylonian empire would never end. He had no idea that it would really last only uh, about 70 years under uh, following his establishing and making of it the great thing that it was, and that it would only uh, continue to be a great empire uh, through his life, the life of his son, and the life of his grand, uh, grandson. And so here he is, he's uh, Belshazzar, this grandson, he's uh, made a great feast, and he's got a thousand of his lords. By the way, they, they have uncovered uh, in, in digs this particular room in, in uh, Babylon, complete with the walls of the room, the, the size of the room, very, very large room, and uh, even the indentations into the, the wall for the lanterns, the candles or the oil lamps to be placed upon the wall in order to light the room, which then they could see the handwriting on the wall, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Now, having this feast and the drinking of the wine here, having a party where you've invited a thousand guests to come, uh, it, it kind of an astonishing event uh, to, uh, to kind of... Uh, order as, as Belshazzar did at that very moment because the city of Babylon at that, at that very moment was under siege by the Medes and the Persians. And uh, the Medes and the Persians had essentially by this point had conquered all of the Babylonian Empire. The only part of the Babylonian Empire they had not defeated yet and conquered was the city of Babylon uh, itself. So it's kind of like an odd time to have a drunken party uh, in, uh, within, within the city. It could have been uh, just a, a, an expression of, uh, of Belshazzar's kind of arrogant pride in, in doing this. 
and kind of intended to communicate to these armies that are sieging Babylon, uh, we're not afraid of you in any way. Uh, Babylon was uh, well prepared for any kind of siege that they were under. Uh, the walls were it was a city that had double walls. Uh, you could, you could uh, have chariot races up on the top of the walls. That's how wide they were. All of the ramparts, all of the towers for being able to, uh, you know, put people in the crossfire that would try to attack the city. Uh, the city uh, was one in which they uh, had, they kept uh, in place a food supply that was intended to sustain a city under, the city of Babylon under siege for a full 20 years. So you think these kind of end of the world places that are sending you tins of food to last, you know, a year or 10 years or 100 years is anything new. And, and uh, so it was really a very uh, it, it, was, it was prepared for this kind of siege. They weren't particularly uh, worried about it in a way that the average city would be. The city was so large, even within uh, the walls, that year in and year out, they would be able to raise their own crops for anything that they would, uh, would eat or any kind of uh, cattle or uh, that kind of livestock for food as well. Uh, the water supply was not an issue at all. Uh, the river Euphrates ran right through the city, and uh, so they were set for the longest siege uh, imaginable. And so uh, he must have, uh, he, he felt uh, pretty good about uh, their circumstances. He doesn't know that uh, before the night is over, uh, it's all over for uh, the capital and it's all over for him. Um, there is also the possibility that Belshazzar felt that somehow in the fact that the Medes and the Persians had defeated uh, by and large the Babylonian uh, Empire that somehow the gods of the Babylonians must have been offended in some way. So he calls this great party now uh, to worship, to honor, to extol the gods of Babylon and try and appease them and get them to uh, turn the circumstances around. We're told there in verse 1 that he's uh, drinking uh, wine with them, he's mixing with them. And the idea there in the original language is they're drinking is, the, is that they were drinking themselves drunk, uh, as, as the old saying goes. So the only thing worse uh, to do in the middle of a siege like this uh, than simply throwing a party on this level is to proceed to get drunk uh, at a party like that. I think you'd be wanting to grab uh, any kind of weapons you could and be on full alert. And, and then while he tasted the wine, and uh, again, this idea of he's feeling the effects uh, of the wine, so he's come under the influence, he's drunk, uh, Belshazzar makes a, a, a very, very grave mistake here. And he gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had uh, taken from the temple uh, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Uh, now, it isn't that uh, they had a thousand uh, people there plus all of their wives and concubines, and they said, wow, we've run out of cups. Um, uh, I know just where there's a stash of them, where, you know, my grandfather stashed the cups from uh, the city of Jerusalem when he, he conquered it uh, and all. And there's a lot more in, in play in that. And so he orders now for these cups to be brought out of the area in which they were being stored. Very unusual for anyone. I mean, this is just unusual arrogance, even in the ancient world for the most powerful of men. Nebuchadnezzar would have never done this. And uh, 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 they were superstitious in that day. And even though you worship your own gods, and uh, you didn't take seriously the gods of other nations, you would never uh, poke uh, the gods of another nation uh, in the eye because there was that always that uncertainty that they may be a real god and you may need them someday or you certainly didn't want them on your uh, enemy list and so uh, you just didn't run the risk of offending them in that way and so Nebuchadnezzar who, you, who was 
off the charts in terms of pride uh, would have never done I- any of this. When, when we went through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and there you have uh, all of the, 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 the tabernacle as it's being built, the later in the historical books, the building uh, of the temple, the, 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 the minute detail that God gave for uh, uh, all of the furnishings of the tabernacle and then the temple, and, and then all of the offerings, how they were to be offered, how everything was to be used uh, so precisely. And one of the reasons for that was because the tabernacle and then the temple, all of those things were models of heaven. It was like a little piece of heaven on earth, a little section of the earth that was modeled after heaven and to be given over completely uh, unto uh, God. And, and as they dealt so carefully, the sacrifices that were involved with even sanctifying the furnishings before they would then use the furnishings in the, the uh, offerings being made unto the Lord and uh, how holy all of these instruments were. And, uh, and here is uh, Belshazzar, he calls and, and uh, uh, orders them to be brought uh, out, of, out of storage, and then he treats them with this horrible ir, uh, irreverence. And what he doesn't realize is that uh, all of heaven was watching it. Those were still God's instruments. And they, and imagine from the van, I mean, it's mortifying when you look at this as a human being, uh, and certainly as a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Imagine how this scene must have been viewed in heaven. And the Bible teaches that God watches everything that goes on uh, on the earth. In fact, it's a a, a favorite verse, I love it, where it declares the fact that he ponders uh, everything that happens upon the earth. He not only witnesses it, but uh, he gives deep consideration uh, to it. Imagine as he's pondering uh, all of this. I mean, just the the sobriety of the scene that it must have been in heaven while this is going on in this room with these, uh, with these people. Uh, 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 by, by information here, uh, in the book of Ezra, we're told in chapter 1 that these holy uh, vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem numbered uh, 5,400 articles, chiefly uh, goblets that were made of, of silver and of gold. So here we see one of the uh, dangers of drunkenness. Uh, it, it, uh, he was probably uh, um, uh, uh, fairly stupid uh, without any help. Uh, the King James, Old King James translates it brutish, but the New King James does use stupid in the Bible, so I'm not being uh, 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 carnal myself. And, uh, but uh, if you want to go uh, uh, from dumb to dumber, uh, 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 just get drunk. Uh, because it, 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 there, there's the loss of inhibitions that we would normally have and, uh, and the loss of needed uh, restraint and uh, perhaps maybe even from our own lives, certainly witnessing it in, in others. I mean, there's uh, drunks often say things while they're drunk that they wish uh, they had never said uh, after they are no longer uh, drunk. And one of the things about alcohol is it gives you a foolish bravery. I used to work with a guy named Hector. Uh, we were linemen together in, uh, for the phone company in Napa, and we'd come together on Monday and, uh, and talk about things, and I'd say, Hector, how you doing? How was your weekend? And he would tell me about the latest fights he got in and whatever bars he went into um, and, uh, and, and getting drunk in those bars. And I would say something to him, and he says, oh, don't worry about that. It's how I know I'm alive. You know? So 
Um, kind of a foolish bravery. Uh, he's a pretty big guy, pretty tough guy, and uh, I'm sure he was on the winning side of, of most of those fights, but sooner or later, uh, you're, you're not. Now, it, it might be that uh, here with Belshazzar that he heard about Isaiah's prophecies that predicted uh, the fall of uh, Babylon to a king by the name of Cyrus. And so he wanted to kind of, uh, uh, again, poke God in the eye, uh, arrogantly defy God and, and, uh, and declare before everyone that is not uh, going to happen. And that prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 25 uh, through 28. And uh, the Lord declaring there, I'll read a couple of verses to you. Uh, speaking of the Lord, who says to the deep, be dry, and, uh, and I will dry up your rivers. Uh, speaking of, of Babylon there. And, uh, and, and then, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, uh, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And Isaiah prophesied that the Babylonian empire would give way uh, to the, the Medo-Persian Empire and to King Cyrus, which is exactly what happened. And then, uh, so the, his, his uh, request was honored. Uh, you notice that first word in verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple uh, of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, uh, and uh, wood and stone. And here they use, they use these instruments to praise these idols. I mean, imagine. Uh, no wonder why this guy's going to see some uh, handwriting uh, on, on the wall. And so they drank from all of them, making light of, and, and uh, making light probably in an attempt to appease their own gods, uh, to get them to get fired up, you know, and drive back the Medes and the Persians by uh, denigrating the god uh, of, of the Jews. And so uh, this, is what, this is what they were uh, probably up to in, in declaring the gods of the Babylonians to be greater than the, the god uh, of, of the Jews. And so uh, he, uh, he, this is the, the, the thing that he does uh, to the Lord. And in the same hour, while all of this is going on, I mean, you want to bring an end to a party, uh, the fingers of a man's hand appeared. Uh, so that's the first thing. And so you've got this hand that appears. Uh, no body attached to it, no, it's just there, uh, up against this, this part of the, the wall. And this hand then begins to write uh, opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. In other words, in a place that's well lit, in a place that everybody uh, can see. And, uh, and the king saw the part of the hand uh, that wrote, so he instantly uh, sees it. And then uh, notice what happens uh, to Mr. Big Shot. Uh, 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 yeah, um, poke God in the eye, uh, a king. And then the king's countenance uh, changed. That means uh, that's his face. Uh, all of the blood drained out of his face. And, uh, and the reason it did, it, we're told, is because his thoughts troubled him. So he, his mind begins to race. His mind is terrified at what it is that he sees here. His blood, all of this is, not, all of this is just involuntary as it's happening to him. And the, the blood drains from his face. And he became so troubled that the joints of his hips uh, were loosened. A little bit of an Elvis thing going on here, uh, only a lot worse. And, uh, and, and then uh, so much so that his knees knocked uh, against one another. And so this is, this is what he sees and this is his, uh, his response to uh, all of it. Well, we, it certainly is a sobering event for him and for everyone that is, is uh, present there. And uh, when it talks about him, uh, his hips and losing control of his legs, literally in the original language it means they began to shudder. 
Uh, he became so weak with fear that uh, he knows this cannot be good, and uh, so the party is over for Mr. Tough Guy uh, here. So he goes, and uh, from one minute, literally in one minute, from me being Mr. Tough Guy, big shot of Babylon, a big shot in the uh, banquet hall with all of these uh, prominent people, and the next moment he's turned into this uh, terrified, pathetic uh, human being. And he hasn't even seen God yet. He's just seen a hand that God sent uh, to give him uh, a message. And, and in an instant, this is what he's, he's turned uh, into. It, it, I, I remember seeing this scene, and I talked about a couple Sunday mornings ago, and uh, maybe last Sunday, but when I would go to the doctor's office and the dentist's office as a kid, they would have that illustrated Bible book. And so you begin with Adam and Eve, and you make your way through until they would take you in. And if you were sick as often as sometimes we were apparently, uh, you'd come in and pick up where you uh, left off last time. But I remember, you know, seeing the Tower of Babel being impacted by the picture, not understanding any of it. But you know how God uses anything to impact us for, by His Holy Spirit. And I do remember seeing the scene as it was illustrated here related to uh, this handwriting on the wall. And I mean, it's always been uh, captivating uh, to me. But as awesome as this scene is uh, here, as it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, there's going to be a far more uh, terrifying future scene in human history. And that is going to be the white throne judgment uh, of Christ. And I stop and I think about the fact that if this is the judgment that God brought upon the offense of drinking out of cups, that were dedicated solely for the worship of Him in the temple in Jerusalem, then what will it be like one day to stand before God Almighty having rejected His Son and the salvation found in Him, having rejected uh, Jesus? A couple of verses that give us insight into all of this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. I wish that every time I read this passage, I could read it for the first time. Let's try and listen to it for the first time. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of him who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, speaking of God, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Revelation chapter 20, the description of that white throne judgment. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, uh, from whose face uh, the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And one day every single human being uh, is going to stand before Jesus and we will stand before him and he will be one of two things to us. He will either be our savior at that moment or he will be our judge. 
And, and it is awesome, I think, to realize uh, that scene is going to be holy, it is going to be righteous, and it is going to be incredibly disturbing. And when that happens, when people stand before the Lord in that day of judgment, uh, just as in this scene when God shows up, uh, there are not going to be any tough guys. Uh, there won't be any arrogance. There won't be any pride. Uh, it, it, we will all be exposed for the very small things that we are as human beings, loved by God, but the small things that we are in comparison uh, to, uh, to the Lord. And all of the people who mock God and scorn God, uh, the God of the Bible today, they're going to be reduced to even uh, more pathetic figures on, on that day. And uh, you might find yourself looking at the culture in which we live and the world in which we live and asking yourself, where is the fear of God today? And I don't know where it is today. I don't see a lot of it. Uh, but I know it will be mightily present uh, on, on that day. Better to trust in him now. Now, he, he sees this, and this is his response to it. And the king then cried aloud, and this means he's, he, he is frantically crying now uh, to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and, and the soothsayers. Uh, the king uh, spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon. He calls all of his wise men in to uh, interpret the, the writing. And he says, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He has no idea at this point that it's all over for him. Those things will mean nothing in 24 hours. And uh, so he calls the astrologers in, and he wants to know the interpretation of the writing. The writing is in Aramaic, and, uh, and Aramaic was a common language at the time of the Babylonian Empire. They could all read it. They could all translate uh, the, uh, the individual uh, four words that were written there. But what they, he wanted to know is what is the message behind uh, these, these four uh, words. Now all of the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king its interpretation. And so these guys are over three now in the book of Daniel. Uh, it must be a very good union uh, that they, uh, they belong to. Nobody can be uh, uh, fired, evidently. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, when, when they were unable to do this, he was greatly troubled, as if you, you, you wouldn't think he could be more troubled than he was, but he was, and his countenance was changed, and his lords uh, were uh, in the same condition. They were astonished uh, as, as well. And so uh, here, uh, here they are, and, and uh, the whole room has changed in, in literally a, 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 a minute. Well, word of all of this, it gets around to the queen. And this is probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife, so the, the grandmother of, of Belshazzar. She's in another part of the palace, not uh, partaking in any of this. And somehow word gets to her, there's a problem in the banquet hall in Belshazzar, and he's shaking like a leaf, he's shaking like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz, and, and there's some writing on the wall, and this is all being uh, spoken to her. Uh, the words of the king and his lords uh, came, uh, she came then to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, uh, saying, O king, live forever. Uh, all right. Last time he's going to hear that. But uh, do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now, she doesn't know what the interpretation of the writing is, but uh, uh, she's telling him, in terms of finding out what all of this means, you can relax about that because there's, there's a source for this, even though your wise men have failed you. There is a man in your kingdom How in the world does a guy like Daniel, with the history that he had with Nebuchadnezzar 
and 70 plus years of serving God and and being a part of God's grace and making Babylon uh, great and a godly influence in the middle of all of that environment. How do you put a guy like that out to pasture? How do you ever as a son or as a grandson ever take that role and this guy is not front and center as an influence? How in the world is he in your kingdom and you are not using him uh, daily? Uh, Astonishing uh, uh, foolishness. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit uh, of the holy God. And uh, by the way, the one you've been drinking from his cups. And in the days of your father, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, your father the king, made him chief uh, of the magicians, the astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Wow, what a reputation uh, he has. Daniel does. Sometimes, you know, I doubt the queen ever came to Daniel and told him face to face. Now, this is how I esteem you. Uh, Excellent in spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting dreams and solving riddles and enigmas. and, And you have the spirit of the great God on you. He probably never heard that from the queen. But that's what she thought. And that's what she knew about him. Uh, you, you and I will rarely have people tell us what they actually see or think of us, for good or bad. Uh, but uh, this life that Daniel was living uh, was having an impact all the way to the top uh, of the Babylonian uh, empire. It is a, a sign of the kind of respect that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, queen, wife, uh, had for Daniel and that when she refers to Daniel, she refers to him by his Hebrew name, Daniel, and then also by the name that her husband gave to Daniel, uh, Belteshazzar. And so she, uh, she has grown to respect the God of Daniel and Daniel himself in, in that way. And so having told him about uh, 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 Daniel, strongly suggesting that uh, he ought to be brought into this scene, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke, and he said to Daniel, Are you Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king uh, brought from Judah? Now, did you need to do that? Did you need to remind him that he's a slave and nothing more than a slave in Babylon compared to you as the king? I mean, is there there no fear? Is there no humility found in you at all that even in the midst of this scene, the one that is coming on the scene that has the solution to the problem that you're looking at, that you have to offend him out of your pride as well and put him in your place? Is that how small you are? And yet uh, apparently uh, he was. It's interesting too that Daniel had to be brought in before the king. He wasn't at the shindig. He wasn't at the party saying, listen, I've got a ministry for God, and how am I going to minister to the Babylonians if I don't get a little taste of Babylonian culture? How else can I be relevant today as a, a child of God? He's a million miles away from it. And, and yet, as much as he has been put in the corner as an instrument of God, He's instant in season and out of season. The moment God needs to pull him back into the limelight for God's glory, he's ready. He's ready to do it. 
And, uh, and, and uh, this is such a beautiful example of that being instant, in season, out of season, as Paul puts it for us, related to uh, the Word of God as he speaks to leaders in, in the, in the New, New Testament. And the, the importance of being uh, ready and available instrument to God, uh, whether our present position is one of prominence or whether our present position is one of relative obscurity. Uh, that's God's issue. That's God's decision for how He uses people. But our responsibility is to be walking with Him and be ready in a moment's notice to be brought into a scene like this. And to Daniel's credit, uh, he was ready. And then uh, uh, Belshazzar says, I've heard of you, that the Spirit uh, 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 just recently, by the way, like 30 seconds ago, I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. He ought to have known it for his own self for all of the years he had been the king. But he has to find out about it now because he had no interest in, uh, in uh, Daniel, whose heyday was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. But that was just my grandfather. I mean, this is a new day. This is a new generation. This is, we're on to new things. There's nothing to learn about uh, from those people. Uh, we know everything. And, uh, and here he is, which is so often the arrogance of youth. And, and uh, I've heard of you and these things about you. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. And now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be third uh, in the kingdom. So he makes the same offer of, of a, a uh, reward uh, uh, to, to uh, Daniel here. There is here, again, is an expression of his pride in dealing with Daniel, even dealing with his, his uh, wise men. Uh, there is this idea that, that he kind of, that emanates from him uh, that everything is for sale in life and that everybody has a price. And that I can take servants of the Most High God, or I can take servants of uh, the God of Babylon, or I can take anyone, and uh, as I can get anything I want from any realm by virtue of offering them uh, money and wealth and power. Uh, everything is a negotiation. Everybody can be bought uh, if 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 the price, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is is uh, right. He ought to have come to Daniel and said, I know there is nothing I could ever offer you, whether it be a third place in the kingdom or a, a necklace of gold or a, a purple garment that could ever cause a man like you or the God you serve to reveal anything to a man like me. So I don't plead to you on the basis of those things. I won't disrespect you. I won't disrespect your God by treating you like a religious prostitute and a religious huckster. As if you have a price like everyone else does in the world, I ask that you would interpret the handwriting on the wall solely on the basis of grace. But his pride is so ingrained in him, uh, he doesn't even recognize uh, the offense that it is and the offense that uh, he is as a result of it. Who is the more powerful of the two men as this man stands before Daniel? Who is the richer of the two men? 
And not all riches in life are are measured in terms of gold and silver and power. Uh, A better way to measure riches is uh, peace, confidence, joy. And all of these things Daniel has, it cannot be bought with money. He is exhibiting in the middle of that scene. And, And Belshazzar has nothing that Daniel wants for himself. But Daniel possesses everything that Belshazzar wants. It is a very, very uh, ignorant person. I'm trying not to use the word foolish or stupid too many times in a sermon. But it is a very, very ignorant person, and I'm preaching to myself, by the way, who comes to the conclusions about the value of any human being on the basis of their station in life. And you know it from your own life. Whether you are rich or you are poor or you have been rich and now you're poor or you're poor and now you're rich or like most of us somewhere in between those two extremes. There are people who are uh, amazing human beings uh, human beings that are astonishing in their character and, 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 who, they, and who they are. And, and, and yet they will never know great wealth. They will never know great power. And people who have great wealth and great power that not a single person in the world respects them in and of themselves. Now, it's a, it's a very poor way uh, to determine Riches and to, to, and, and to determine, you know, how, how people will be uh, honored in the situation. Daniel's far richer than, than uh, Belshazzar uh, here. And then what is, what is Daniel going to do with another purple robe? <laughs> What's he going to do with another gold chain? I mean, he knows what's going to come down. He could have another gold chain. He was fabulously lavished upon by Nebuchadnezzar. He had wealth a lot. And then who knew what the Medes and the Persians were going to take uh, during the night and looting and all. And, and so, you know, did he need this third place in the kingdom? Did he need another gold chain? What's he going to do? Would they go to the disco? Oh, great. This will knock him out down there. Listen, I don't want a gold chain, but I've been dying for some puka shells. Now, that might move me here. You can't offer a guy like this at, in his late 80s, having served God, uh, anything. This man has nothing to offer to, to Daniel here. And so Daniel answered, not with a cockiness or anything like that, and he said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards for others. Yet, here's the grace, I will read the writing to the king and make known to, you, to him the interpretation. And here is Daniel's concern, not to take the gifts, because he does not want in the mind of Belshazzar to think that the God who has done this thing in this room or his servants Uh, that you can buy that uh, with silver and gold. Their services, uh, the gifts of God that are in their life, or the God that they serve. He says, I don't want anything. I want this to be as clean as clean can be. This is about you, and it's about God. Let's not muddy it with any kind of an idea of payment. And he said, O king, the Most High God, and he's going to give, uh, uh, give Belshazzar a history lesson before he gives him the interpretation. He's going to tell him about his grandfather, things he knew about his grandfather but chose to forget. What does his grandfather know about anything? He only created the Babylonian Empire that I am running into the dirt presently. Oh, what could he have to teach me about uh, anything? And so he didn't heed the lessons of his, his uh, grandfather. And so Daniel says, more than, than the interpretation, uh, you need something as well, and that is you need a history lesson 
uh, related to your grandfather, and you need to be reminded of what you ought to have learned from your grandfather, and you knew to learn it, but you chose not to learn it. He said, O king, the most high God, again, uh, the, the Lord God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. It was this God that gave that to your grandfather. The kingdom you're overseeing right now, that was given by God to him. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. And whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride. Here's the great issue. This is the great lesson he didn't learn from his grandfather. And we, we studied it last week. And uh, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of man, men. His heart was made like the beasts. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. And then here's the point. Here's what your grandfather learned, that you have never bothered to learn for yourself, or you would have never gone and gotten those vessels out of storage till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints, it over, uh, appoints over it whomever he chooses. That's the God that you've offended uh, tonight. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Uh-oh. I would know, we, none of us wants to uh, hear that be said to us. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And what is true of Belshazzar in that statement is true of every single human being on the face of the earth. He holds our breath in his hands. We live at his pleasure. And to hold one breath means to be in control of whether we live or we die. And that's the kind of control that God uh, has within our life. And the God who has that control is a God to be glorified. And so here he confronts uh, Belshazzar's uh, pride. And then he moves on now to give the interpretation of the writing. He said, then the fingers of the hand uh, were sent from him sent from this God that you never bothered uh, to learn about, even though it's in your heritage, it's in your family. I hope there's none of us tonight who are living a life of pride against God or living a life far away from God, having uh, uh, gone out into that kind uh, of a life and a, 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 of rebellion against God, and if we've done it, against a godly heritage, against godly grandparents, against godly parents, against things that we grew up. There are literally billions of people in the world who would love to have been raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and they sit in darkness waiting for some missionary to bring them the gospel and the truth of this God that we were raised in all of our lives. And, 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 and then have walked away from it. And there's a greater responsibility for that. 
And the, and the importance of that is our case, even the backslider in heart, if it's not, not, not outward, to come back to the godly heritage that we've been raised in or we've been exposed to. He knew better. And this is the inscription that was written, uh, many, many tickle you farsen. And this is the interpretation of each word. Many, which literally means uh, numbered. Uh, And here is the interpretation. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, which means uh, weighed, and and they already knew that. But what's the interpretation behind uh, tekel in Aramaic for weighed? Here's the interpretation. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. No matter what the rest of the kingdom thinks about you, what all of Babylon thinks about you, what all of the thousand people in this room think about you, all that ultimately matters in life is what does God think about you by His righteous standard. And you and your life and your empire has been put in the balances. God's moral law, God's righteousness put on one side of the scale and you put on the other side of the scale and you have been found wanting. And then Perez, Eupharsin uh, means divided and, and here uh, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so here, it, the, the whole interpretation of it, uh, God has numbered your days and, you're, and it's over. Uh, and the reason for it is because you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and now uh, your kingdom is going to be divided. And, and the word divided there literally means to be kind of uh, smashed in terms of a, of a division. It isn't merely that it's going to be divided among the Medes and the Persians. So that exactly that would happen is that the kingdom would be uh, wiped out in terms of of uh, this kind of leadership over it, and then God would hand it over to the Medes and the Persians to then, to then uh, rule it. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and good do his word. You've got to give him credit where credit is due. They clothed Daniel with purple. They put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler uh, in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was uh, slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being uh, about 62 uh, years old. And uh, uh, so as all of it comes to pass uh, before that very night is over, and so here Nebuchadnezzar is long dead now, and he thought this head of gold would last forever. He had no idea it would last about 70 years and give way to the shoulders and arms of silver in terms of the image that we looked in in, 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 in chapter 2, the, the dream that was, was there. I'll tell you, I wouldn't bet against a single promise that's listed in the Word of God. All of it comes true uh, to the most amazing, amazing uh, details. In terms of the fall of Babylon, it is interesting. You, you might think, how in the world with those walls, with the food supply, unlimited water supply. I mean, how did they, they get through? Well, because the Euphrates River r- ran through the city as, as a water uh, a source, uh, there were sluices uh, on each end of where the river uh, entered into the city. And uh, what Darius did in the, in the armies of the Medes and the Persians is uh, upstream, they diverted the river, uh, in, uh, in part d- diverted it just enough into a large marsh that it lowered the level of, of the river far enough that men could then get between the gap between where the water was and, and the sluice was and then enter into the city. And they came in and were so unexpected uh, that they took the city uh, with absolute ease. In fact, Babylon was so large, uh, Babylonians were waking up the next morning and uh, only then finding out that they had been conquered in the night. And, uh, and all of it happening exactly as, as God had declared uh, that, that it would, uh, would happen. And, all, uh, and uh, again, in Jeremiah's prophecy, Isaiah prophesied of it as, as well. And I, I think one of the great lessons, and it's a continuing lesson through these first six chapters of, of the book of Daniel, 
uh, in terms of for the, the Jews in Babylonian captivity, for us, for God's people, uh, all through the ages, that these events, Daniel's record of them here in the chapter, it reassures us that no matter how uh, powerful the wicked are, no matter how powerful our oppressors are, no matter how great the pride and the arrogance that is expressed uh, within a world or within a nation toward us, or, or even uh, worse, toward uh, God and the things uh, of, of God, uh, that as Nebuchadnezzar learned in the previous chapter, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He's got the whole wide world in his hand. And he's got the itty-bitty baby in his hand as well. I think I heard Satchmo sing that for the first time when I was a young boy in the way that only Satchmo, Louis Armstrong, could sing it. And it impacted me because it was a truth uh, of God as a young boy. God was after me so long, just like you, long before we ever realized that that, that was uh, was going on. And he is in control of human history. You say, wow, that is so good. I mean, it, God said and then God did and it all came to pass. And it's true of every single promise in the Bible toward you and I uh, under a greater covenant, the covenant and the relationship that we have with God based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Certainly the passage speaks to us, and uh, pride is something that we all have to deal with. Pride, it just simply means to see myself above others. And, and the problem with pride, there's a lot of problems with it, but one of the problems with pride or seeing myself above others is that it's not true. Um, people may be better at certain things than you are or worse at certain things than you are. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about intrinsically who we are as people. We are not greater than one another, and we certainly are not to live a life of looking down upon others. One of the problems with pride, Paul wrote about, uh, if a person thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He rarely is deceiving everybody else. <laughs> he's just fooling himself that he's better than everyone else. Everybody else can read him like a book or her like uh, a book. And so that, that, that danger of, of that, that pride. And one of the problems with pride is that if I view myself as greater than others, then I always have to be proving it. And that results in a very hard life, certainly for other people, but it is a very high-maintenance life for the individual living that kind of life. And it's exactly the life of Belshazzar that is, is found here. And we see that the, the mistreatment of people uh, and in arrogance and in pride, uh, so often it then carries on into uh, an arrogance and a pride toward God. And certainly anyone who is arrogant and proud toward God is certainly not going to be, uh, is certainly going to carry that pride in their relationships with other people. So in what is really one of the most sobering and ugly portraits of pride, and all of the Bible, we just want to let it have its due impact upon each of our lives uh, tonight. Is there anyone that we are disrespecting or mistreating or looking down upon in our lives as a result of our pride? in our marriages where it can be so dangerous. Always when a husband mistreats a wife, and more rarely, but it does happen, a wife mistreats a husband, there's always awful pride that's involved in that. Or the pride of a parent toward a child, or a child toward a parent, or whatever the relationship might be. And to just ask the Lord tonight before we leave this place to just wash this ugly, ugly, terrible thing away uh, from our lives. 
And uh, again, nothing to be proud about in our lives as Christians certainly and, and everyone. But we owe God uh, not just our very next breath, we owe Him uh, everything. And when that is the case, then the only thing we really have to be proud about, and, and it is not something that should translate into pride in our life, is, is in the Lord Himself. If you're here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and we would love to pray with you to come to know this God now, in this life, while you have the opportunity to do that. Everything that we see, that uh, all of the, the absolute ugliness of Belshazzar as it's recorded for us in this passage, it absolutely pales in comparison in terms of being an affront to God in comparison to the person that spends their entire life shunning God's offer of salvation and rejecting the very Son of God. That is a very serious business to be engaged in, and you don't want to be found there, not in this life and the life to come. Come to know the Lord tonight. He longs to do that in your life this evening. Now let's stand together and we'll pray and close. Fathers, we see this uh, dramatic display of arrogance and pride expressed toward you and then expressed toward Daniel and toward others on the part of Belshazzar. Um, we recognize it in our own lives, in our own pasts, in our own treatment of people, our own way that we, we view people. We see the ugliness of it on the, the printed page and as we imagine the scene as you've given it to us in our minds before us. And I pray for myself and everyone in this room and we pray for one another that if there is even the smallest amount of pride that is being expressed through our lives as your children, Lord, toward anyone, toward those we work with, toward those in our neighborhood, toward those that we live with, we're married to, that we're raising, Lord, whatever the relationship might be that you would use tonight in the work of your Holy Spirit to completely burn it away from our lives and to give us that beautiful simplicity, that beautiful peace, that beautiful regal, godly bearing of Daniel as we make our way through this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.